And so those of you that are anxiously waiting to find a seat, now you can do so. We, we are in the process of figuring out how to get some more seating, and so bear with us in the coming weeks. As, as we have some of the commotion of the kids finding their places, I, I want to just introduce this new teaching series. It's called, What is the Gospel? So I already know some of you in the room are thinking to yourselves, hold on a second. You're telling me that we're doing a whole preaching series, and it's called, What is the Gospel? You might think, well, I already know the gospel. I've already been saved, and so it's, it's not like this is new to me. I've already heard it before, and I already know what the gospel is. And, and I will agree that more than likely, most people in this room have a pretty good idea of what the gospel is. And so when I ask the question, what is the gospel, I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about. But what, what would happen if I would say to you, hey, I want you to take out your bulletin in the little notes section, and I said, I want you in the next, say, two or three minutes, just write the gospel. Write the main points of the gospel in your bulletin. How many of you would struggle? How many of you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure exactly what I would write. Maybe you would write things along the lines of, the gospel is about Jesus. Or you might say, oh, the gospel is about the cross. Or the gospel is about being saved. And whatever you would write, if you wrote anything like that, you'd be right. Because those are all parts of the gospel, no doubt. But the truth is, my passion is not to have a church to see a body of believers that have an idea about the gospel, or even a pretty good idea. What I want is for us to be so saturated by the gospel that we so understand it and are living it and it animates us that there's no doubt that you could clearly communicate it to anyone who asked you and that you would actually be on mission because as a church, our passion, our mission, why we are even here in the first place we're here, our mission is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. That's why we are here. And so if you're to glorify God by making and developing disciples, you must know the gospel. Because you can't teach what you don't know. It's not possible. Yet, be very frank with you, understanding the gospel is actually more than just you being able to share it with other people. Now, it is that. But it's actually more than that. The gospel needs to be your entire essence. It needs to be everything that we're about. You see, the gospel is God's revelation. God has spoken to us through his gospel. Apart from the gospel, we would not know who God is. We would not know who we are. There is one true God, and he has spoken crystal clear through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's plan for your life. It is God's plan to save men and women, and yes, boys and girls, who yes, sometimes cry, and yes, can be noisy sometimes. Yes, God's plan, the gospel, is to save men and women and boys and girls. But we must understand the gospel holistically, the complete gospel, not a partial gospel. Many people have some basic understanding of it, but they only have little pieces of the puzzle. 
But my passion is over the next several weeks, as we go through this new series on what is the gospel, that you, at the conclusion of this, will understand what it is and how to apply it and why it really matters. But today, we begin this series by asking the question in your notes, why does the gospel matter? You're thinking, well, that's kind of a sacrilegious question. How could you even ask that in church? Yes, we're in the zoo, but this is still our church gathering. Why would you even ask, why does it matter? I want to give you a mental picture that will hopefully help you understand why I'm asking, why does the gospel matter? I want you to picture a swimming pool, okay, and a diving board. Everyone got a picture in your head? Okay, good. Now, I want you to picture a very common understanding of the gospel. Most people believe, whether it's just by default or poor teaching or whatever, but most people believe that the diving board is the gospel and the pool is the Christian life. And so the way this works is you walk up to the gospel, you walk up to the diving board, and then you jump off the diving board, the gospel, and into the pool. And the pool is the Christian life. And you live your life in the pool, and you have left the gospel behind because the gospel is what you use to get saved when you said the prayer or filled out the card or raised your hand in a worship service. And so you heard the gospel and you believed it, and you, you received Jesus into your heart, to use that common vernacular, that language. But, you, but you've moved past the gospel because the gospel was up there and you used it to launch off of, and now you're in the water, and now you're in the Christian life. And now in the Christian life, the goal is to master some very important things, things that really matter, that are most important, like learning how to have a good marriage, and learning all the rules and how to behave as a Christian, and acquiring a lot of Bible knowledge, and learning how to say Jesus in four syllables, Jesus. And you have to learn all these things. And you have to learn how to be a good Christian. But, but the gospel is up there, and we're, we've moved past it because we used it to, we, I mean, it was important. It got us in the pool. But now we're in a different pool, swimming in the waters of the Christian life. Now, if you think that, and my, my very condescending tone has already revealed that I don't agree with that view one bit, I apologize if that's been your mentality, but that is the average Christian's thinking about the gospel. I'm here to tell you today in the rest of this series, and as long as I'm your pastor, that the gospel is not the diving board you launch off of. The pool is the gospel. The pool is the gospel. Yes, you jump off the diving board, that is the gospel, but then you go in the water and you are in the gospel. And your entire Christian life is being immersed in, covered in the gospel, going deeper in the gospel. That's what it's about. The gospel is the pool. We never get beyond the gospel. We simply go deeper into it. And we're going to learn how this works and why this matters and why it matters to you today and the rest of your life out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there. The gospel is not just your ticket to heaven. 
The gospel is the center of your life and your faith. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. I want to give you the main idea for this message, for this sermon, for this passage, and then we'll break it down and look through it. The main idea is that the gospel reveals the beginning and the ending of God's salvation. And so it's the beginning and the ending. And so the gospel is not just the beginning. It's not just the beginning. The gospel is the beginning and the ending and everything in between of God's salvation. Verses 1 through 5, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is an amazing, beautiful, crystal clear passage that describes the gospel, the message of salvation. And so God's plan to save you is holistic. It's your past, your present, and your future. From beginning to end, the, the Christian life, your faith, everything is about the gospel. And so we'll look at the three phases here, your past life, your when I say past life, I don't mean the Hindu karma reincarnation past life. I mean yesterday, literally. So your past, your present, and your future. I want to read verses 1 and 2 again, just so you get this, okay? Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now, listen. They've heard this before. He says, I would remind you. This is nothing new to you. You already know the gospel, yet I'm preaching it to you again. You have not moved past it. We're just going deeper in it. And so he says that I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And so again, here, the, the, the phrase where he says, so this is the gospel I preached to you, in which you received. Well, that's past tense. You received it in the past. And so he's saying that they have responded to this gospel with faith and repentance. So there was a time in the past where they, quote, got saved, where they received Jesus, all right? But then the next phrase, he says, in which you stand. That is a present, that is active, currently. And so, yes, there was a time in the past where you received the gospel of Jesus, but then you are currently standing the gospel is holding them up. That's the language here. This gospel is holding them up in their current life. And then and there's a future element where he says, and by which you are being saved. That is a future tense in the original language. And so it looks kind of present in the English translation, but it is being, it refers to a future, continual. And so even their future depends on the gospel. And so their continued growth, and so your growth tomorrow, the grace you'll need for tomorrow will be provided for you. Sometimes we want tomorrow's grace today. You're not going to get it. You get today's grace for today, and tomorrow you'll have what you need. God will provide it for you. You are being saved. You are being saved by the gospel, future. So your past, your present, and your future. 
You see, the gospel is not just the beginning point where we then forget about it and go about our lives living our own way. I've talked to so many people that they're burdened over a loved one that is just not following Jesus. There's no passion for him, doesn't read the word, doesn't go to church. There's no, there's no evidence that this person loves Jesus. And they say, but I know he's a Christian. And I say, well, I don't know that. I can't see hearts. They say, because he prayed 30 years ago. Really. I'm not saying he didn't pray. But the gospel, as the Bible describes it, is, yes, there's that past tense. But then there's the present continuing. The gospel sustains us and grows us, and then the gospel is what sustains us in the future. Now, I I love this phrase in verse 2. He says, and you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, hold on to that last phrase, unless you believed in vain. We'll come back to that in a minute, okay? But let's look at the phrase before. It says, the word I preached. And so he's referring to the gospel, because verse 1 says so. And, he, and then he explains it. So he's explaining. He says, okay, just so you know, the gospel is for your past, your present, and your future, for your entire life holistically, But then he explains what it is. He's very clearly laying out what the gospel is. So verses 3, 4, and 5 define what the gospel is. He says, for I deliver to you a first importance. Okay, he says a first importance. Well, what does that phrase refer to? Well, he's talking about this is the essential. This is what's most important. This is what you must know, you must believe. If you miss this, and you've totally missed it. So we as believers, we have to believe this. This is very important. This is the foundation of our faith. And what is it? What is this foundation? That Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. The single most important phrase that is the foundation of our lives. This is the foundation of our faith that Jesus died for our sins. You see, what this is already assuming, if there has been someone dying in our place, that humans are rebellious. And we read that very clearly throughout the rest of the scriptures. He doesn't expound on it in this passage. He just says it very briefly. He died for our sins. But the foundation here that's being built upon is that we are rebellious, that we are sinful. Not just that we mess up on occasion, but the Bible says that our souls, our entire being as a holistic being, is corrupted and infected by sin. Now, that's kind of a hard truth. But the Bible says that we have all sinned, and sin is breaking God's law. That's by definition what it is. And so we stand guilty before a holy God. Now, again, this is a hard truth, but it's in the Bible. Now, here's the thing. God is good, right? We'd all agree that God is good, right? We'd all agree that he's a judge. And so if you read in the Bible, especially in Romans 1, look at that passage next week, it describes clearly that he is a creator, he is a king, he's in charge, he, he makes the rules, if you will, he sets the agenda, he is all-powerful, sovereign, and he is a judge, and he is a good judge. And we have broken his laws, and so therefore we stand convicted. We stand condemned by this good judge. And you say, well, how would a good God send someone to hell? Well, he's a good judge. He has to. He has to. He can't let me go to heaven. 
He can't. If he lets me go to heaven, then he'd be a bad judge. Because I'm a convicted criminal. My heart is selfish. I've broken his laws. And so therefore, he cannot, as a good, holy judge, he cannot simply let us off the hook. He can't let us go free. There has to be a payment. There has to be a penalty paid for breaking the law. And we understand this. I mean, we understand if someone breaks the law, you have to, have to go to prison. You break the law, you, you know, we, we understand logically, but then you know what happens? We don't apply it to ourselves. We don't apply it. We think, oh, God can just forgive. Really? No, we can't. There has to be a payment. There has to be a penalty paid for breaking the law. And that's the whole point. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus died in your place. Someone had to pay. And that's why it says the next phrase, according to the scriptures. He's alluding to Isaiah 53, written 800 years earlier, talking about how Jesus, the Messiah, would have to die in the place of the people. And it says, and he was buried, is the next phrase. Well, he clearly died on the cross. I know there are many people, including friends that you'll meet in Abu Dhabi, that say, no, Jesus didn't die. No, he, he was taken up to heaven before he died. There are people who would say that. Many who would say that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible, this is, hey, I'm, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it, all right? This is, this is not my words. I'm just reading the Bible. It says, and he was buried. He died for our sins. Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully human, and so he could die, and he did die. See, but we already know this, right? I mean, if we've been in church for a long time, we, we know these things, but we have to stop for a second and really contemplate, really think, what are the implications of this? Just think, Jesus was there in, in eternity past. He was there when Adam was first created. He experienced the joy of seeing Adam take his first breath, those of you that are parents, do you remember when your baby was born and it was this weird little blue creature? And it was like, what is this? And then the baby cries. And then you start crying because your baby is crying and you're so happy. And then the baby turns pink. And it's just incredible. Like, and, and before your very eyes, this little weird blue thing turns pink. When the baby takes the first breath. And life is breathed into that child. And we overjoy at seeing that. Well, God experienced that joy on an infinite level when Adam took his first breath. You don't think he was a proud papa? Of course he was. And you don't think Jesus was overjoyed when he brought Adam his beautiful bride and his face lit up? And the word for man in Hebrew is ish, and the word for woman is isha, and you say, isha. You don't think that God was just thrilled and overjoyed to see his son enjoying his wife, and then God walking in the cool of the garden, just enjoying Adam and Eve, just enjoying the relationship, delighting in this relationship. Where God is God, yes, but they're enjoying his relationship. Jesus was there. 
He was there when he saw Adam tempted by the serpent, and he saw Adam rebel against him. Jesus' heart is the one that broke when he saw that, saying, Son, what are you doing? What are you doing? He was there when he saw his beautiful, pure, clean, incredible, perfect, holy creation descend into the pit of what? Sin and corruption and violence and disease and death. He was there when he saw that happen. And it wasn't his fault. It was ours. We have rebelled and we continue every single day to rebel. We continue every day to sin and pursue other false gods, other idols to give us fleeting pleasure, and it leaves us hungry and thirsty. And Jesus sees this, and he said, Father, I'll pay the price. I'll do it. And for the joy set before him, he went to the cross, and he died in the place of humans that did not, do not currently deserve anything good from God. And yet, because God is kind and loving and gracious and patient and glorious, Jesus died in your place. The sacrificial lamb. But he didn't stay dead, did he? Because what does it say on the next phrase? And that he was raised on the third day. He proved that he is the Son of God. He proved that he has authority and power, and he conquered the grave. He conquered sin and death itself, and he is alive. The phrase there is, and continues to be. He is alive. He wasn't raised and died again. He was raised and is still alive today. The resurrection is the foundation of our hope. And that's why he said in verse 2, unless we believe in vain, because he's connecting it here to the resurrection. How do I know that? We'll read chapter, um, same chapter, verse 14. Same conversation. Verse 14, here's what he says. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If there's no resurrection, then we believe in vain. We're lost. We're lost in our sins. We have no hope before a holy God. But because Jesus died and was resurrected, he is victorious, and we now have hope. And so we don't believe in vain, because we affirm the resurrection. We believe he died and is alive today. This changes everything. This should change everything in our lives. It's all about the cross. The gospel is about the cross. The focal point of human history is the life, the death, the burial and the resurrection of the Son of God. That is the thrust of all the human history. And the next phrase, according to the scriptures, it was, it was foretold. Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 said that the Messiah would not see corruption, that his body would not stay dead, he would resurrect. God saw this coming. God wasn't surprised. This was his plan from day one. So what is the gospel? It is the message of God redeeming the world through the death of his son for his own glory. That's what the gospel is. And why does it matter? It's God's plan for your life. It impacts everything. Now, throughout this series, in the next several weeks, we're going to look and we're going to learn how this gospel 
impacts every area of your life, and we must filter all of life through the gospel. And so how you think, how you behave, how you feel, yes, even your emotions, your work, your career, being a mother, being a father, your other relationships, your decision-making, your family life, everything. The life of our church will go through every one of these topics throughout the next several weeks as we learn about the gospel more deeply. And you're going to see and you're going to learn how to apply the gospel to every single area of your life. Because what happens is we have the gospel, we believe it, it's religious, it's Friday morning, and we have all of life, and it's separate. And it should not be that way. The gospel must permeate every area of our lives, and it must govern how we do everything, how we think and act. Everything about our lives should be funneled through, filtered through, applied with the gospel. And I'm going to show you how to do that so that, so that you will know how to really live the gospel. Today, in our time remaining, I'm going to apply the gospel to your identity. So we're going to begin by talking about the different areas of your life, by beginning with kind of the overarching one, how you see yourself. Let's talk now about your identity and how your identity must be defined by the gospel. Here's why I say this. Most people in this room define yourselves in light of your nationality. I'm American. I'm South African, or I'm Filipino, or I'm European, or Australian, or whatever, all right? Whatever your nationality is, there's a lot of them in the room. You, to a degree, define who you are based upon your home country, or your language of origin, your heart language. But others of you define yourself not just by that, but by your gender. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I have these looks, my appearance. And so many of you define who you are based upon your masculinity or femininity or your impressiveness of appearance or physique, maybe. Your, your gender, a lot of that can define who we are. For others of you, especially ladies, it's more your family status. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. And so I define who I am based upon I am a mother. Who am I? I am a mother. I am a wife. For a lot of men, it's not that. It's our career. My career defines me. And we often tend to think that what we do, what, what people pay us for a living, we have our existence, our identity wrapped up in our career or our job, whether it's a wife or whether it's a whatever business owner or labor or whatever it is, we tend to define who we are based upon these kinds of things. A lot of you in this room that aren't married, but maybe you want to be married, you define yourself as I'm a single person. Woe is me. God doesn't love me. I don't have a wife or a husband. You must not, we cannot define ourselves in any of these ways. And so there are many more, but we don't have all day. I want to talk to you in our time remaining on how does the gospel impact your identity as a human being. Let me just say this. If you're defining it by your career, your looks, your money, your marital status, your whatever, okay, your, your career, if any of those things is your primary way of defining who you are, I have news for you. You will be disappointed. I'm telling you right now. If you're wrapped up in your career, if your career defines you, someday you're going to lose your job. It's going to happen someday. Or if not, you'll retire. 
and you lose your identity. If you're, if you're wrapped up, if your identity is being a wife, guess what happens to half of marriages? I'm sorry to say this, but half of them end in divorce. Now, they ought not, and as believers, that should not happen, but we know it does happen. And even if you don't get a divorce, even if you're married, our marriages can be disappointing. And I say that with my beautiful bride in the room, and I'm still saying it unabashed, marriage can be disappointing. Why? I wasn't made for marriage. I was made for God. I was made for a relationship with God through his son Jesus, enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's about God. That is the prize. That is the goal. It's not marriage. Marriage is simply one way that I can experience God more fully because marriage is a picture of the gospel. We'll talk about that later in the series. My point for today is your identity cannot be wrapped up in any of these things because it will either end or disappoint you. You must define it by the gospel. So let's look at the three phases, your past, your present, and your future, I want to give you one key word for each of those, and then we'll wrap up, okay? You with me? All right. Past, present, future. One key word for each that defines your identity. The first one, your past, the key word there is saved. Based upon your past, you have been saved by the gospel. Remember that? Just write it in verse 1 and 2, that you received the gospel, so you've been saved. And so your past is defined in a lot of the gospel, and the word is saved. Remember what Paul says, you have already received this. Your salvation is a past tense, rooted, affirmed reality. But see, here's the thing you have to understand. There is nothing you can do to change that. Nothing you have to do to change that. We'll talk about this more in the next few weeks, but here just briefly. You don't have to do anything to impress God. You're not a good person. This is, this is not a, a fun message, but I'm, it's the truth. The only good person is Jesus. And his goodness, his righteousness has been imputed to you, given to you. Our goodness is borrowed from Jesus. It's not yours. It's alien to you. It's his. Alien, not as in weird green monsters, alien as in other, not yours, from a different place. Your righteousness Whatever you have that's good is given to you from God. Your salvation is not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon what was done for you, and God will never take it away. That's the beauty of this. He won't take it away. You cannot lose it. You have eternal security if you have truly repented and believed in Jesus. And so your past, your past can haunt you, can't it? Your past mistakes, your past failures can really haunt you and feel like I have skeletons in my closet. But it should not. It should not because your past is taken care of. Jesus died on the cross for you, displaying God's love for you. And so you don't have to live in the past that it's been dealt with, paid for. Jesus paid for it. But what about your present? The word there is sanctified. And so the word for the past is saved. He's saved you. You can bank on that. But for the present, for today, he wants to sanctify. He sanctifies you. 
That's what he says. You are currently standing on the gospel. The gospel is holding you up. You have the grace that you need today to be sanctified. What does that word mean? It means be made holy. It means being made more like Jesus. Have character that is more like his. Killing the sin and living and walking in the spirit is what we're talking about. So here's my point. Whatever level of spiritual dysfunction or spiritual problems that you may have, there's one cure. Whatever spiritual problem you have, the cure is the gospel. And so do you want more control of your body? If you say, man, that is my, my dysfunction, that's my, my struggle, I want better control of my mind and better control of my body. Drink from the gospel. If you say, what I want is to be content with what I have, content with my spouse, content with my job, content with where I live, with the car that I drive, with my savings account. I want to be content, okay, feast on the gospel. If you say, what I want is I want to have a good marriage. I want to have a spouse. I want to get along. I want to have fire in the marriage. I want to really like her and enjoy her and enjoy him. I want, I want our marriage to be red hot. What do you need to do? The gospel. Be filled with the gospel. That's going to change your marriage, being filled with the gospel. If you say, man, I just don't feel close to God. I need a greater passion for God. If that's you today, be overwhelmed by the gospel. The gospel is a cure for anything of these spiritual problems that plague us the solution to being sanctified, to being more like Jesus, to having better fruit is the gospel. Will you please, please stop trying on your own? Stop. Just stop it already. Stop trying on your own to make sense of your life. Stop trying on your own power to somehow earn God's favor. You don't have to. Jesus did it for you. You don't have to impress God. Jesus did it for you. There's nothing you have to do. You have to just abide in Jesus. Do you want fruit in your life? I mean, really good fruit in your life? Spend time with Jesus. Abide in him. Read. Meditate. Spend time with him. Meditate on the gospel, on the glory of God in your sinfulness, and it will change you. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. And you know what happens? This is amazing, but it's true. I can testify to this. He changes your heart from I have to to a I want to. Now, I don't have to love my wife. I want to. I don't have to read this. I want to. I don't have to go to church. I want to. I don't have to tithe. I want to. He changes you. He changes my heart. The more time I spend in him, the more beauty I see in Jesus, in the gospel, the more I think about him and spend time with him and I abide, continue in him, my heart is transformed and all of a sudden I find myself really wanting to and not having to. So how does this work with your identity? Here's what's going to happen to you. Heads up. You're going to be attacked spiritually. If you're a believer in Jesus, our enemy, Satan, will attack you. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those moments when in your head you can almost hear the words, Look at you. You just look at you. 
Well, you just look at your failures. You call yourself a Christian. You're such a poser. You're a disappointment. Look at all your mistakes and struggles and fears and insecurities. You're a mess. Your marriage is a mess, and you're a loser. And why even bother going to church? Why even bother reading the Bible? God doesn't love you. He can't possibly love you because you have screwed up your life so bad. Just stay in bed. When Satan attacks you, and when the, when the thoughts of failure and disappointment come, and all of us in our own way experience them, when Satan attacks, you fight back with the gospel. You say to Satan, yes, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I'm not even going to argue that point. Yes, I'm not good enough. You're right. You're right. But I don't have to be because Jesus was good enough in my place. And so step off because I'm walking in the Spirit and God loves me. And how do I know that? I look to the cross and God shows his love to us in this. When we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So I know God loves me, Satan. So get out of here. I don't need you in my face because I have Jesus. I have been redeemed I have been forgiven. I have been adopted into his family. I have been justified by Jesus' work on the cross. And so I will not define myself by my struggles. I will not be identified by my failures. And so say you picture a young woman that is struggling with her body image, and she's anorexic, and she wants to fit in, and, she wants, and so she's not eating. And she says, I'm an anorexic. No, sister, you're not an anorexic. You are a child of the king. You are adopted. You belong to Jesus. You struggle with anorexia, but you were not defined by it. You were not defined by your struggle. You were defined in light of the gospel. You belong to Jesus. And so who are you? What is your identity? I belong to Jesus. I define myself by the gospel. I do not define myself by anything else because it will disappoint me or it will change or drag me down. You see, sometimes you have a hard time discerning if it's the spirit of God or if it's Satan coming and speaking to us. And so here's what can happen. When Satan comes, he comes to condemn you because he wants to paralyze you. And you want to point out your sin to say, just stay down. Just don't even get up. God can't use you. That's the saying. He condemns. The Spirit comes, and guess what? He also pointed out sin, but for a totally different purpose. The Spirit of God points out sin to convict us to repent. And the Spirit of God says, hey, come on, get up. Well, get up. I know you fell down. I know you're in the mud. But you don't need to stay there. Come on. I'm with you. Get up. Let's go. Don't, don't stay down there. Yes, you're covered in mud, but come on. I'll clean you up. Stop trying. No, no, no. Stop trying. I'll do it for you. Can you please get up? Let's go. We have somewhere to go. Disciples to make. 
glorifying God together. Let's go do this. And the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and yes, pointing out the mud on your face, but because he wants to clean it off. He wants you to be pure and holy and useful for God. And so when the Spirit of God points out sin, it's that you'll repent and turn back to him afresh and enjoy that relationship again. So the Spirit says, come on, don't stay down. Satan condemns saying, stay down, you're worthless. So do not confuse the prodding, the conviction of God who loves you, his spirit doing this with Satan accusing and condemning you. Worlds of difference. We define our identity and who we are. And as we close, the last word for your future sustains. You've been saved, you're being sanctified, and you're being sustained. Your past, your present, and your future. As I mentioned, the grace for tomorrow you will have when you need it, and we have an eternal hope waiting for us in heaven, and so we live today in light of eternity, and God sustains us through the very same gospel. So the gospel reveals the glory of God. That's what it does. But you know what? We're just getting started. We have several more weeks to look at different passages and apply the same gospel to every area of our lives and learn how the gospel impacts everything. It's not some religious set of beliefs that the pastor knows, blah, blah, blah. No. This is for you to live out the gospel. What is it? It's a message of salvation for you, for your life to live out. Have you ever truly repented of your sins and believed in Christ as your master, as your savior. If you haven't, then what I've been talking about does not apply to you because you have not been forgiven of your sins. God will forgive you if you'll ask him to. If you will say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I repent, I turn away from my sin, and I turn to you with complete trust, with all my heart, true faith. Then God will forgive you, and he will embrace you, and you will receive his Holy Spirit, and he'll begin to change your life. But you have to repent and believe. This is not abstract. This is about with all of your heart truly believing. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I just want to give you a moment to just reflect on these things. If you're a believer already, the question is, have you defined who you are in light of things other than the gospel? Repent of that. Define yourself. Turn back to him afresh. He'll never reject you. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But if you know that you have never asked Jesus to save you, you can do so now. And as we explore deeper waters in the coming weeks of the gospel and how to apply it to our lives, you can continue to learn. He will change you and use you, but you must repent and believe. And if you are even now talking to God and asking him to save you, I ask that you would fill out a card in the back table so that I'll know your decision and I can follow up with you and help you in your process as you grow, as you're more sanctified, as you become more like Jesus in your journey. Father, this morning we are thankful for you. We are thankful for the very gospel. 
We don't deserve you or your love, but we are so thankful that you have freely given and shared it with us. I pray that you would help us to truly live the gospel and not believe it as an abstract thought, but with all of our hearts, live it out every day. I pray that you would be with anyone in this room that is turning to you right now, whether for the first time or whether for the thousandth time. We need you, God. Thank you for your son's life, death, burial, and resurrection that gives us hope. Thank you. We just pray this now in your son's beautiful and precious name.